baseball season is upon us, right? Uh, how many Yankee fans do we have here? Please raise your hand high. Oh, we got standing up in the back. Stand. How about Med fans? Oh, <clears throat> more than I thought. More than I thought. The poor Mets, yes. Uh, always, maybe next year, maybe next year. But anyway, that's okay. Uh, always look forward to baseball season. When I know baseball season is here, I know that the grass is growing and warmer weather's coming in, and uh, that's a good thing. Well, I, I've always been a baseball fan. I played baseball up and through college, and uh, uh, the other night, uh, I, I know during baseball season, if I want to waste 20 minutes in the evening, I, I can get a game. I know there's going to be a game on. So uh, one, uh, one day this past week, I turned on the TV, and um, uh, I was watching a game. Now, you may not know the game of baseball, but let me show you a little diagram of what, uh, what the, how the positions that the players play. If you've never seen baseball before, uh, this is how it goes. You know, you got some of, most of you are, are kind of cognizant of this. The only thing that's wrong a little bit here on this diagram is the first baseman and the third baseman play a little bit off the bag, a little bit to their right and left. But the rest of, rest of them are how the players are normally positioned. Uh, that is the normal position of nine players who are playing defense in the field. And the positioning of the players is critical to the success of the team and the success of every single batter that comes up, whether they're going to get them out or not. A lot of it has to do with the positioning of the fielders. Now, uh, let me show you what, what I saw the other, uh, the other day. Uh, a left-handed batter got up, and uh, you know when a le- now you see the guy on the top there, uh, he's really the short, uh, he's actually the third baseman. And uh, the other guy's a shortstop, and the guy closer is, is a second baseman. And the guy is such an incredible pull hitter. He was a lefty that they put everybody on one side of the field. Everybody, they say, because the odds, they already know, because they've done studies on, on this guy, they know that 99 times out of 100, if he makes contact with the ball, it's going to go to that side of the field. It's going to go between first and, and uh, uh, second base. And wouldn't you know it, he hit the ball, and the, the guy, three men up, was right to him, didn't have to move his step, threw him out. Uh, it, was, it was played perfectly. The players were positioned perfectly for success. Now, in that sense, what's true in, ba- in baseball is also true in our spiritual life. We need to position ourselves for the blessings of God to be revealed in our lives. Now, over the past week, many of us have started to position ourselves, believing God for big things in our lives, in our families' lives, in in this church, in our communities, at the place that we work. We're making prayer requests of folks, all kinds of things. When you handed in your, your contracts last week, there are a myriad of things that you are praying for, things that would break some of your hearts to read and to hear, and others that you're just kind of like, cheering for you just you know you're saying god let's let's do this together we need to position ourselves for the blessings of god to be revealed in our lives and folks it's not enough to simply desire god's blessing in your life you need to position yourself to receive it it's not enough to say you're ready to receive god's blessings and yet do nothing to position yourself to put yourself in the right position to receive his blessings Now, Daniel 9, that Corinne just read for us, is a long prayer. Long, right? 
I, I have a feeling that maybe it was even longer, and that's really what the Holy Spirit decided to, to write down for Daniel. That is a prayer. It's Daniel's prayer. It's a prayer on behalf of Daniel himself, but also on behalf of the people, which we're going to be talking about more next week. Now, years before this prayer, Babylon, if you remember a little bit of your, your Bible history, Babylon invaded Israel, and basically they destroyed everything. They were the superpower at the time, and Nebuchadnezzar came in, and they destroyed Solomon's magnificent temple. They took away all the gold, all the silver. They broke down the entire city was basically put to the torch. Jerusalem was basically destroyed. They, they, just, they just ransacked it. Uh, they destroyed the city, they destroyed the temple, and in 605 B.C., when Babylon did all this, Babylon did all this, they took away a large part of the population. This is what they normally did when they went in and they invaded a country. Uh, they would destroy everything, but they would, take, they would leave people that weren't killed there to live among the ruins, but they would take the brightest and the best of that population, as far as they could determine, back to Babylon with them. It, it wasn't just the Babylonians who did this. People, you know, nations for the most part did this all the time and so scooped up and taken back to Babylon was a guy named Daniel and a number of his friends they were young young men at that time and they were brought back to Babylon and they they sent them you know Nebuchadnezzar sent them to their version of Princeton shout out to you Al he learned they he learned the language he learned the culture he learned the politics and God used Daniel in that world to a very high degree, and Daniel became very, very powerful. But before long, God's judgment fell on Babylon, and their evil king, now the successor, a guy by the name of Belshazzar. And when Persia uh, took over, and they, 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 they came in through the walls of Babylon, their new ruler, Cyrus, took over, and he immediately looked at the men who were leading that nation, and he saw Daniel, and he said, I want you to be on my team. Why wouldn't he? Daniel was a stellar leader. Daniel knew how to make everything run. Why would you, why would you put this guy to the sword? So Cyrus, and actually his vice regent, Darius, kept Daniel in the high position of power that he had. And, and Daniel, at this time, he's an old, old man, not long before he, his death. He prays in, in Daniel chapter 9. And he prays just as Babylon had fallen and the Persians had taken over. Now, as I said, Daniel's near the end of his life. And he's having his devotions one day. And he has before him the scroll of Jeremiah opened up the prophet before him. And he sees something in the scrolls that literally stirs his heart. It just, it just shakes him. And he sees that once again he was reminded that the 70 years is almost up. The 70 years when, when the Israelites were going to be captive to the Babylonians, the time was almost up. Uh, pretty soon they were going to be led out of their captivity and back into their land, even though their land was destroyed, back to their land. Babylon had been judged. Daniel was reading that from the prophets. D Babylon had been judged just as predicted. And the time for Daniel's people to be restored had, was right at the door. And you read about that and you say, well, that should put a really big smile on Daniel's face. Wouldn't you think? Wouldn't you think he would be doing cartwheels? The 70 years is almost up. My people are about to have a huge prayer answered. We're going to be restored back to the, the Holy Land. We're going to go back in mass. 
But Daniel wasn't happy. And here's why. Their terrible trial of judgment, though it was about to end, didn't change them. It didn't do anything to them. Though the world had had changed, his people had not. They had suffered. They had struggled. And still their hearts, Daniel knew, were not right with God. They still were rebelling against his law. And he knows that the time prophesied was almost at an end. That things were about to change. But he looks over the landscape. And he looks at his family. And he looks at his nation. And he looks at his people. And he wonders, he really wonders, what good did this whole terrible, crummy captivity really accomplish? What what good did it do? And, 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 And his people, their hearts were still so far from God. Now, unless they were restored in their relationship with God, Daniel knew something. He knew that they were never going to be blessed by God the way God desired to bless them. So his heart was broken. Dr. Harry Ironside was uh, a uh, prince of preachers in uh, the middle of the last century, around, around 1940s and 50s in uh, Philadelphia there. And Harry Ironside once wrote this. He said, Daniel realized that when, when God is about to work, he begins by exercising his people that they may be restored in soul if they have wandered from him. And thus blessing would result upon their being brought into the place of self-judgment and humiliation before him. When God is about to work, Daniel said, he begins to work on the hearts of his people. And those who are far from him, he draws close to him. So that he can bless them, but he cannot bless them until they draw nigh to him. Until they enter into a time of self-judgment and not, he says humiliation, not embarrassment, but humbleness before God. Daniel knew this. And so he said in verse 2, at that time I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips. And I used no lotion at all until the three weeks were over. Do you know what the original Daniel fast was? It was a fast of repentance. That's what it was all about. It was an acknowledgement that he and his people had fallen short of God's call to them. And that's why they were being chastised by God. And Daniel knew it. In their case, very severely. And Daniel knew that if a spiritual connection with their God was going to be reestablished before their release, they would have to come to the sinner's place. Remember we talked about the sinner's place last week in our readings. And folks, I got to tell you, this was big. This, what Daniel was doing in this prayer was really, really big. And it was key. So he prepares himself for what he knew was going to be a huge spiritual battle, a real time of wrestling in prayer. Have you ever wrestled in prayer? Have you ever fought in prayer and felt like, you know what? I I feel like there's somebody on my back. I feel like there's something against me. Somebody's against me. Why can't I think? Why can't I concentrate? Why why is this so difficult? I just feel like I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. Daniel knew that the enemy was there. And Daniel was preparing himself for the, for the wrestling match. 
So he goes on a modified fast. He omitted certain foods for a limited time so that he could prepare himself to pray to God and pray on behalf of the people whom he loved. He rids his body, his physical body, of unnatural, self-gratifying food and drink. He wanted his focus to be on God and God alone and not on the fleshly things of this world. He was preparing. He was positioning himself. This wasn't about focusing on a lack of food, but it was, a, it was about focusing on God himself. Because he was about to ask some big things of God, and he knew that he had to be laser-focused. Now, the prayer that Daniel prays in, in Daniel chapter 9, he knew this wasn't going to be some quick, you know, SOS type of prayer, you know? You're walking into the test, oh God, please help me, God, please just help me to remember this. I know I just started studying last night, but please, you could help me to talk. Or, or the kind of where you're going into the board meeting, or it's raining, and you're like, God, please give, give me a parking space right near the door of the mall, because you know what, I really, I know you can do anything, and I know somebody can come back. It's not that type of prayer that he was praying, okay? He was praying for big, big things. And if he was going to pray for big things, this was going to take a total repositioning. If his people were once again going to receive God's blessing and enter into the season of refreshment and blessing that God wanted for them, Daniel knew that he was going to have to pray and he was going to have to grind it out, no holes barred, on his knees, weeping, rocking back and forth type of prayer. That's the type of prayer that it was going to take because he was asking for huge things, huge things. God wrote to his people through the prophet Joel, and he said this. He said, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Jeremiah said, call to me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Promises of God. We have been invited to call to him in prayer. And when we do, his word says that he will tell us things that we don't know. If you want deeper intimacy with me, God is saying, then you need to position yourself by seeking me like you have never sought me before in your life. I was praying this morning. I said, God, help me to seek you the way that Daniel sought after you. I don't even... I'm not even sure I understand exactly how Daniel prayed. I'm not sure how, how, how broken his heart, how shattered he was that he would weep and cry before God for his people and for their sins and for the fact that, that they were not receiving the blessings that he knew that God had for them. That takes a special kind of man, I'll tell you. It takes a special kind of person. And Daniel's prayer outlined the simple path to positioning themselves, I think, for God's blessing. It's our path too, by the way. He prays about the problem that was keeping them from God's blessing, and then he talked about the solution. The problem and the solution. Very simple. It's not enough to simply desire God's blessing in your life. You need to position yourself to receive them. Well, the problem, first of all, the problem was kind of simple. It's there laid out. They hadn't listened to God. They just hadn't listened to God. So Daniel prays. He 
He prays for the nation. He prays for himself. And he prays this, I pray to the Lord my God and confess, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and law. We have not listened. Now, that, now look, it's, when he says we have not listened, it doesn't mean like, like they didn't hear it. They're all deaf. Everybody's deaf. They had heard it. It went into their brain. They got it, but it had never traveled the 18 inches down to their hearts. It was stuck in their brains. They had heard God's law. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. See, Daniel identified the problem. The people had not listened to the word of God that they had been given. It was not a problem of a lack of knowledge. It was a problem of a lack of obedience. That's what it was. And it was a problem that over 500 years later, James would identify in the New Testament in his book. In James chapter 1, he says this, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. You know what we've talked ourselves into as, the, as a, not so much the crossing, although certainly it's, it's part of us too, but the church, capital C, we have talked ourselves into believing that a good listening of the word is all we need. If we come on Sunday and we hear a good list, we do some amens, raise our hands a little bit, maybe, you know, not too high, but just a little bit, you know, during worship, you know, don't get too carried away. But, you know, you know we do that, that somehow that's enough. If we listen on the radio, if we watch television, the television preachers or something, that's all we really need. And James is saying, you must be kidding. And he hammers home this truth by using an illustration of a mirror. He says, you know what? Your spiritual life is never going to take off if you're like that. Now, we all know that a mirror is designed to do certain things, and it's not designed to do certain other things. One of the things that a mirror is designed to do is to show us the damage of the night before. I mean, that's what it does when you get up in the morning. I mean, you go down the stairs. You wonder why everybody's, you know, running out of the room. It's, you know, because you haven't even looked at yourself yet in, that, in the morning. It, it basically what it does, it reveals us to us an accurate picture of what we are. It, not what you'd like to be, but what you are. Now, the Bible indicates that God's word is like a mirror in that respect. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse, uh, verse uh, chapter 4 and verse 12 says this. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. In other words, the Bible is going to tell you exactly what you are. That's how it's like a mirror. It tells you what you are and what you're about. That it was, that's what it was designed to do. The Bible is a mirror of our souls. It shows us what we really look like on the inside. And we really need that because a lot of us think that we're a lot better than we really are. I have to tell you that right now. Neil Weinstein is a researcher at Rutgers University. 
and he recently discovered that college students rate themselves far more likely than their peers to get a good job, own a home, make a good living, and far less likely than their peers to get cancer, get divorced, or be fired from their job. In the survey taken, uh, uh, that, that he took, 90% of business managers and college professors rated their performance as superior to their peers. 90%. You say, well, they're Americans. They, we always think we're the best, right? Everybody thinks that they're the best. Uh, not so fast. Survey was done in Australia. 86% of the people rated their job performance as above average, while only 1% rate theirs as below average. 1% of the... Where you work, is 1% of the people doing a lousy job? Come on, tell me the truth now, really. I mean, you know that. You know the answer to that. The fact of the matter is, most of us view ourselves in a generally positive light. But the Bible seems to indicate something else. Talk about a mirror. In Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul, quoting from the Old Testament, said this, There is no one righteous, not even one There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. And there, folks, beloved, there we have a general description of lost mankind, of what we are on the inside. One of the things that, what, that Amira does is to reveal to us an accurate picture of what we are. Another thing it does, it shows us exactly where we need to improve. Oftentimes we're shocked when we look in the mirror and we instantly realize why we received, as I said, all those horrified looks sometimes, right? You realize you need some work. A quick look in the mirror would have shown you the areas that you needed to have work done. Oftentimes, the simple fact is that we're just unaware of what we're dealing with. And we need the objective truth of the mirror of the Word of God that doesn't lie to give us that. In the same way, the Word of God has a way of clearly revealing those areas in our lives that need attention, if we will only look. See, that's what a mirror does. It gives us an accurate picture of what we, what we are it shows us exactly where we need improvement. But a mirror doesn't do a couple of things, too. Something a mirror won't do. It will not show you what you want to see. Forget about this mirror, mirror on the wall business, okay? I mean, you know, who's the fairest of them all? You, you luscious, gorgeous hunk of manhood, womanhood. It's, it's not going to happen. It's not happen. Mirror's never going to tell you that. That's only in fairy tales. A mirror isn't, isn't designed to deceive And neither is God's word. Most people want mirrors that will make them look good and feel good. We want these fake mirrors, you know, that, you know, and they have, you know, they have mirrors that will make you look, look better. I mean, you know, I, we should, everybody should just run out and get a whole load of those, right? And we put them all, we should put them in the church, just in the church. So when everyone comes to church, they feel so good about themselves. They're going to say, I want to go to that place from now on, you know, because all the mirrors, there's mirrors all over and I look fantastic. Okay. But the word of God's not going to do that for you. And and, and Paul writing to Timothy, knowing that people are going to want to see what they want to see in God's word, said, watch out for people who come wanting to have their ears tickled instead of wanting the truth. The word of God isn't going to show you what you want to see. One other thing that a mirror will not do, it will not just by looking at it, 
improve things. Okay? This, that has to happen in you. The Bible, this Bible is it's, it's leather and it's paper and it's ink. It does not change me simply by looking into it. It doesn't. Now look, there's a few things that we can do with the information that the Bible gives us as the Bible is a mirror. We can ignore it. We can pretend that mirrors don't exist. Many years ago, Queen Elizabeth, who was beautiful, supposedly a beautiful woman in her youth, in her later years of her reign, ordered that every mirror be removed from Buckingham Palace because she couldn't stand to face that she was growing old. See, there are people who do not look at the Bible because they really don't want to look at themselves. They really don't. There's another response to the information that a mirror gives us. We can glance at the mirror, see what's happening, and just decide to do nothing. In this case, you know what? You're no better along than Queen Elizabeth. You may as well not even have looked at the mirror for for all the good it does you. There is an interesting word in verse 23 of that chapter. I was looking at this week in, in James to describe a hearer of the word, which is a listener only of the word. The word literally means audit. It means audit. If you have ever audited a college class, basically what are you doing? You're saying, I want all the information, but I don't want to write any papers. I don't want to take any tests. I don't want any grades. I don't want any responsibility. When you audit a class, you don't have to do the homework. You don't got to take the exams. You just have to sit there and absorb and absorb the knowledge. Now, there are many people who sit week after week and give every indication that they are auditing the Christian life. They come to church. They sit. They listen to the music and the message. And they walk out with ever having any serious intention of it really changing their lives. One person wrote, hearing the word without responding to it is like chewing your food without swallowing it. It tastes good, but it has no long-term benefits. Folks, the Bible says that hell will be filled with people who knew the word but did nothing about it. James says that he is a man, he said in that first chapter, who goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I have to tell you, Honestly, God's blessing does not come to people who ignore mirrors or who look at them and see what's there and choose to ignore it. And I think that's a reason why there are tons of unhappy, disappointed believers who consider God unfaithful because he has never fulfilled their expectations in this life. Daniel knew what the problem was. His people... And he prayed it to God. His people had been hearers only. It just, it went into the auditory canal, and that's as far as it went. Instead of spending time looking out the window, they needed to look deeply into the mirror of Scripture, which would then shed light onto their lives as Daniel did. And if if they did, God would reveal the real problems, the real sin, the real darkness that was hiding all in the corners of their lives. Daniel was a man who made a habit of looking into the mirror of truth. And only those who do can understand the deception and the destructive nature of sin. Folks, it's not enough to simply desire God's blessing in your life. You need to position yourself.
to receive those blessings. That's the problem Daniel saw. The solution? They needed to humbly put their hope in God. He said in verse 1, In the first year of Darius, son of uh, whatever, a maid by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom. All right? What is he saying? He's saying that God made Darius the ruler. God's hand was in the choice of Darius as the ruler at that time in history. The God of Abraham. The God of the universe is in control of everything. I have to tell you that right now. That's what the Bible says from Genesis through Revelation. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the number of hairs in your head. What does that tell us about the world? In verse 3, the word Lord, Adonai, is used. It's the only time it is used in this prayer. He is the owner. He is the ruler of the entire universe. So what? That's great. How does that fact help me position myself for blessing? By affirming that God rules over everything and is in charge, it gives us two things that we need to move forward, that we have to have to move forward to get blessings. It gives us hope, and it puts in our hearts humility. First, it fills you with hope. On the surface, Israel's situation looked completely hopeless, folks. I can't think of a more hopeless situation. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from home. Slaves, captives, and uh, basically uh, their whole national identity just blown apart. Jerusalem, their home, desolated. There's nothing left back home. They're exiles. Yet in the midst of it all, Daniel has hope. He turned to God. He turned his face towards God. He didn't just know something about God. He knew him personally because he knew that his God was a God that could be known. That's the difference with modern spirituality. Modern spirituality says, you know, really, can you know God? I I don't believe in dogma. Who can can know God really? You know, there may be a, a spiritual force, but you know what? He's way out there. It's not like a personal someone that we could know. That is not the God of Daniel. Those positions are most comfortably held when everything's going well. I was, on, I was talking to Mary, Mary last night. I was telling her about, uh, uh, I was on a website. You know, uh, uh, Kanye West and Kim Kardashian started a church out in, out in California. They started their own church. And um, uh, they, they call it, uh, they said it's, it's a Christian church. Yet there's no preachers, there's no theology, uh, there's just music and a feeling that when you leave, you're going to feel up. And I watched a little bit of one of the services, and they got a really talented choir of people. You, could, you can get a lot of good singers with money. I mean, you really can. You can, get a, you can have a great choir. And, and, and there was nothing to it. And they were explaining in the website how spiritual they are. They're spiritual creatures. But they are not worshiping the God that we are worshiping. They're not worshiping any God. They're worshiping some spirit of feeling good. That's what they're worshiping. Folks, uh, I have to tell you something. Um, That is not the God of Daniel. Because when you are confronted with death and despair and horror, you want a God who you know when you cry out can bring you hope and can bring you comfort. You don't just want to know about him. In the movie, 
signs. Mel Gibson's wife is tragically killed, and he renounces his faith. What makes it extraordinarily shocking is that Mel Gibson is the town minister. He's the man that people come to when tragedy hits their own life. When, when the rogue winds of, of circumstances knock their own ship of faith over on its side. And, and his wife dies and he's totally destroyed and he leaves the ministry. Now sometime after her death and his departure from his church, strange, weird crop circles begin to appear out of nowhere along with ominous lights that appear in the sky all over the world. Have you seen the movie? Sightings of hideous-looking alien creatures begin to occur, and they realize that the earth is about, is just about to be invaded. Now, Graham, Graham Hess, played by Gibson, and Merrill Hess, his younger brother, played by Joaquin Phoenix, are watching, they're watching television. And Merrill looks to his older brother, the former minister, and he says, some people are probably thinking this is the end of the world. Watch the screen. They're sitting there in the middle of the night and the aliens are just about knocking on the door and Gibson says there are two 
kinds of people in the world. Those who believe there is a God who is in control of all things and who will make things okay, and those who are either not sure or are positive there is no God, and they think that their luck plus the hold for good things to happen, that they need to go to the right schools, that they need to make the right decisions, and when they do, good things will happen. But then he says, but deep down, what they know is that they're all alone in the world, and it fills them with fear. Folks, when the aliens are knocking on the door, when the business seems to be going down, when the doctor comes back with a not-too-good report, when the child you raised has gone off the rails, who are you going to turn your face to? Do you know the God of Daniel who is good, who is listening, who can do something about your situation? Or do you not? Sigmund Freud was an avowed atheist. And uh, unbeknownst to many people, he lived a very tragic life. After World War I, he lost his 23-year-old pregnant daughter. Soon after that, his four-year-old grandchild died. And this is what he said. As the deepest of unbelievers, there is no one to accuse. There is no one to whom I can lodge an accusation. Do you know why? Because he was all alone. And that made him frightened. God of Daniel, the God of Daniel, was a personal God. He was a God that was just. He was a God that was merciful. He was a God that rescued. Daniel has hope because as bad as things are, he can say, I know God. And I know at least two things about God, that he is just and that he is merciful. God is both just, righteous is another word that's used in scripture, and merciful. He prays in verse 14, he says, The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does. Yet we have not obeyed him. If you want to look to one single solitary being in all of creation who always does the right thing, it is Daniel's God. And Daniel knew that and he understood that. And Daniel comes to God and says, you are righteous, but we are wrong. He doesn't say, can't you just you know, forgive us and forget about things and look the other way? No, he is celebrating the righteousness of God. Daniel doesn't want to live in a universe where the God of the universe is unjust. We wouldn't want to live in a town like that. I got news for you right now. He celebrates the righteousness of God. It's par- it's, it, it is part of what holds the world together. We need a righteous, just-filled God. And we need to know that if it's not right now, someday, justice, real, true justice will prevail. We need to know that. And he doesn't stop there. Because if he did, you know what? If he, if he just stopped there with justice, he'd be crushed. We'd all be crushed. He celebrates God's mercy. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, the Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. 
We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. He appeals to his righteousness and his mercy. Now, folks, I don't know what you're going through. Many of you. Some I do. Some I do. But not all of you, what you're going through or what you have gone, gone through. But I know that when the storms of life come, you will pray. I'll bet 99.9% of the people in this auditorium will pray when the storms of life come. But do you know the God of Daniel? And if you don't, where do you go? If you don't know him, how in the world can you have hope? How do we find hope on this side of the resurrection? Well, we can go to God on this side of the resurrection and say, I know, God, that you have punished someone else in my place. I I, I will call my sin for what it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the key to understanding forgiveness and repentance. Knowing that my God controls the universe fills me with hope. But it also drives humility deep into my heart. In verse 3, he said, So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and in ashes. Sackcloth and ashes were a sign of complete humility, a a, a complete position of abject humility. What he was saying was, I am God, I am personal God of mine. I am completely dependent on you, completely dependent on you. Isaiah 57 says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly. God lives in a place that we cannot see right now. But you know, he lives somewhere else. You know where he lives, Isaiah was saying? In the hearts of those who are contrite and are lowly. God knows that our biggest problem is that we don't think we need help. He knows that we think that we don't need Adonai. We think we could do it on our own. And only when we come to him in humility is he able to meet our needs And pour out blessing into our lives. The very first thing we should do is usually the last thing we do, which is cry for help. We think we can rationalize it, live with it. But Daniel was saying, until you posture yourself in deep humility and admit that you are not in charge of the universe and experience deep humility in God's presence, you will never be able to position yourself properly for the blessings that God wants to give to you. When we know that God is in charge of the universe, it reminds us that we're dependent upon him for everything. Everything. Dietrich Bonhoeffer used the phrase cheap grace to define how cynical the church had become towards God. The world finds a cheap covering for its sins. It has no real desire, he believed, to really be delivered from sin. Folks, remember, sin is not merely an act. It's an evil desire behind the act. What acts have you made an effort to get control over but have never asked God really to change your heart from which the actions come and from which they originate? Are you ready during this fast? 
Are you ready to ask God to reveal the real sin in your life? And are you ready to ask God for a true heart that is truly repentant? Are you ready, crossing? Are you ready? The only one who can heal us is the one that we constantly struggle with. Isn't that amazing? If the people of Israel were to position themselves, Daniel knew, to once again be blessed by God, it would come through the forgiveness of God of their sins. Daniel knew that. Daniel knows that they must confront their sins. Listen, our prayer is not, thy will be done, it's my will be done. That's our main prayer. The only thing that will heal us is confession and repentance. And Daniel appears to the love of God in his concession. The the shame, the guilt is from the fact that we have rejected the one, the only one who can heal us. What's it going to take to reposition ourselves for blessing, folks? It will take ears that hear and obey and humble hearts that will put their hope in God alone. Because, folks, let me say this. It is not enough to simply desire God's blessings in your life. You need to position yourself to receive them. On the cross, on the cross, we understand that Jesus became the ultimate exile. He became a curse to take our sin upon himself so that when you go to God and confess your sins, you know that they will be as white as snow. That's what Isaiah said. You don't need to point to anyone else's righteousness. We know that God loves us. We no longer have to be motivated by fear or guilt or self-interest. I already know that God loves me, and I know that he will forgive me. Daniel knew that his people were in no way ready to receive the blessings of God. That's what broke his heart. That's why he prayed the prayer in Daniel 9. That's why he prostrated himself. That's why he put on uh, ashes on his head and sat, sat there in sackcloth. That's why he had the fast, the Daniel fast. Because he was weeping over his sins and over the sins of his people. And he knew that they needed a radical repositioning if that was ever going to happen. Folks, the Bible says that Jesus Christ radically repositioned himself from heaven's splendor to the sinful earth so that he could take upon himself the sins of the world so that we could come to him so that he could make an opening between us and God so that we could receive the blessings of God. He didn't come to receive blessings. He came to give us blessings. That's what the scripture says. By his sacrifice, he did the one thing that made all the blessings of our faith in him possible for all of us to receive. The goal of this 21-day fast is for us to have a closer relationship with God our Father. That's what we want. That is the goal. It is a gift of God that we seek. Now this week, as we continue in our fast, I want you to pray. I hope you're praying. That's part of why we're doing this. And I know it's hard. And I know sometimes the the, the, the siren call of this life with 100,000 voices come to you. And, and, you know, by the time it's 8 o'clock in the morning, you're saying, I don't got time for this. I, let me just read it real quick through and, you know, with, you know, not coffee, but with a cup of, you know, something, hot water or whatever. I'm drinking almond milk and we'll do, you know, and it's, it's just, you know, really quick. It's not going to do it. It's not going to do it. I want, as you pray this week, 
I want you to pray for two things. I want you to pray that God will open your eyes to see your sin and to grant you a heart that is seeking after repentance. Even You may not even want to repent of something. So pray that God will give you a heart that will desire to repent of certain sins. Pray for that. And then pray that God will help you humbly put your hope in Him and in Him alone. Folks, it's not enough to simply desire God's blessing in your life. You, me, we all, we need to position ourselves to receive that.